please stand with me, if you will, for the reading of God's word. This morning, Pastor Wayne is preaching from John chapter 20. We're looking at verses 24 through 31. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many signs, many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just now, we just ask that you open our hearts, our minds, our ears to hear your, role, your, your word proclaimed clearly, that you would um, use Pastor Wayne this morning in a mighty way with his preparation so that we might gain increased, ever-increasing confidence and faith and belief that Jesus is our Christ and the Son of the living God. For these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks to the efforts of Anna Jarvis, early 20th century, uh, Mother's Day has been observed now on the second Sunday of May for more than 100 years. And though my mother is with the Lord, I am very grateful that my wife has been such a terrific mother to my three girls and that my three daughters are great mothers to our eight grandchildren. And we have many wonderfully devoted mothers in this church. You know, the Lord said through Paul to young Timothy, he said, women will be saved in childbearing. That's 1 Timothy 2.15. Now, he's not talking about we're reconciled with the Lord uh, through childbearing. I mean, the, the only way we're reconciled uh, with the Lord is what Christ accomplished through his atoning death. But when you take that statement and you put it back into the context of what he's saying, it's that though woman, talking about Eve, led Adam to sin, which is what resulted in the fall of all men. It is through woman that the Redeemer, the Messiah, the, the, the Savior will come. And it's also the calling of woman as mother to bring future generations, though they are fallen in nature, to bring future generations to the truth of God's word. And so Paul says they'll be saved from the stigma associated with Eve by the raising of godly children. That's why that verse goes on to say, if the children, if the children continue in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. So mothers, listen, you have no commands to put braces on your children's teeth. You have no commands to send them to school. 
You have no commands to dress them in the latest styles. You have no commands to teach them to be winners in sports or in the arts. You do have a command to teach them how to live in faith, love, holiness, and with self-control. Now, unfortunately, don't expect those children to appreciate you when you do that. And, and this isn't saying that every woman will be a mother. But it is a fact that every man and every woman has a mother. Though, unfortunately, not all mothers redeem themselves in childbirth. In this country alone, since 1973, the Roe v. Wade decision, 63 million children have been ripped apart in their mother's womb. It was leaked this past week that the court may be correcting what they got wrong, just as they got it wrong in 1857 with the Dred Scott decision, and it took a bloody war to correct that mistake. It's been a bloody war on children in the womb for nearly 50 years. But while the world is commercializing Mother's Day, and while they will celebrate women who denounce the divine purpose for motherhood, we want to say thank you, thank you, thank you to those within our fellowship who take seriously the Lord's calling to bring your children up in the knowledge of God's truth, that they might live by faith according to truth. And that's what our text is dealing with today. Faith focused on facts. Last Sunday, on the eve of the first day of the week, Resurrection Sunday, Christ appears to Mary of Magdala and two other women who come to the tomb. He appears to disciples on their way to Emmaus and to Peter and to the other disciples minus Thomas. And that's where we pick up in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, that's the word didymus from which we get the word ditto, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and I place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Never, never, never. We've heard that well-known English epitaph, the Doubting Thomas which I think is rather unfair to Thomas. you got to keep in mind the other disciples also doubted until they physically saw Christ when he appeared to them. You remember um, back in chapter 11 of John uh, when Christ had left Jerusalem because they were trying to stone him before his hour had arrived. And after he has left Jerusalem, word comes that his, his good friend Lazarus is dying and actually has died and so he says, we're going back to Jerusalem. We're going back. And the disciples tried to talk him out of it. They said, you can't go back. Just, they tried to stone you. You get anywhere near Jerusalem, and they're going to have you killed. Remember what Thomas said? Thomas said, let us also go that we might die with him. So Thomas doesn't like commitment. In John 14, Christ says, let not your hearts be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare it, I'll come again to receive you. That where I am, there you will be also. And you know where I'm going. You know the way. And it's Thomas who says what the others are thinking. He says, wait a minute, Lord. We, we, don't, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? 
I mean, Thomas is just being bluntly honest, isn't he? If you go to Jerusalem, we will die. If you're preparing a place for us, that's fantastic. But we don't know where you're going. We don't know where you're going. So when Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What's he doing there? He's laying down this foundational fact. It can be rejected, but it can't be changed. There is no other way to be reconciled with the Holy God but through the propitiating atonement I will accomplish at the cross. That's the way. That is the way. How are you going to confirm that, Lord? The resurrection. The resurrection. Then on the same Sunday that Christ comes forth from the tomb, what does he do? He goes to the upper room. And Thomas is not present. Thomas has not visually seen the physical bodily resurrection of Christ like the others. And I asked myself the, the question this week, why? You know, at first I thought, well, well, maybe he just doesn't want to get his hopes up again because after all, they were pretty crushed during those horrendous hours when Christ was being beaten and beyond recognition and being blasphemed and humiliated and spit on and crucified and so forth. Is that really the reason though? Or is it that Thomas's feelings are severely hurt. Severely hurt. Why, Lord? Why would you come to all of the others? And you're omniscient, you know all things. Why would you come to all of the others when you knew I would not be there? Why did you come then? I've heard what the women said about going to the empty tomb. I heard what the disciples from Emmaus had to say. I've been listening all week to what the other disciples have been saying about how they saw you. But I haven't. I haven't seen you. Why? You know, it's not that I don't want to believe, but I just need to see the facts for myself. Why do you need those facts, Thomas? Why do you need to see those facts? Do you understand Christianity is based on historical facts? Christianity is not a philosophy. It's not some ethical teaching like Buddhism. It's not some religion with political overtones like Islam. It's not a works-based system like Mormonism. It's not a set of meditations like Hinduism. Christianity is based on historical facts. The God who created us, being holy, must be just with us. He must, unless he satisfies the justice his holy character demands. And then proves through his defeat of death that our redemption has been accomplished. Got to keep in mind, Thomas saw the miracles that Christ did. He saw the healings. He was there when Christ commanded the wind and the waves to obey, and they did. He saw the authority that Christ had over death and others. He knows that it's true that no man ever taught like this. He was there. He heard him speaking firsthand about heaven and hell and life and death and life after death. But why have all the others seen him and I have not? Why is that? You see, some people, they, they choose to doubt. They choose to. 
They choose to reject the facts of Christ because in their fallen state, their minds are so darkened, they don't want truth. Truth infringes upon the autonomous immorality of their life, the life that they want to live, that they want to enjoy. They want sexual freedom. They want the freedom to be their own God. They don't want to be held accountable for choices that they make. And so in their fallen condition, they purposely refuse to believe. Refuse. Some doubt comes from pain. Sometimes those who, who suffer abuse or are treated unfairly begin to question, you know, how? Why, Lord? Why? You are a holy God. Why would you allow this to happen to me? This isn't right. It's not fair. Therefore, they begin to doubt that there is a God or outright deny that there is a God. I mean, that's what Josh McDowell went through. He had an abusive, alcoholic father. And he reasoned in his own darkened mind that if there was a God, he would never have allowed him to be raised by such a father. And so Josh not only doubted, he denied that there was a God. And then he investigated the facts. That's why he named his book The Evidence That Demands a Verdict. There are different kinds of doubts. There are different motivations for doubt. There are different reasons for doubt. Maybe there was a pastor you once trusted. You believed. He up and left his wife left his family, left his church for somebody else. And so that causes you to doubt. Was what he told me about Christ actually true? If it was, why did he do what he did? Or maybe the church where you first heard the gospel, where you were baptized. That's where you began to grow in Christ's word. And now... Members of that church are fighting? Gossiping? People you once respected? Are being hateful? I mean, that can cause people to start doubting whether the message of Christ is true or not. And sometimes people, sometimes people just are disappointed with God himself. They just don't understand why. Why are these things happening to them like they are? Why? And I think that's where Thomas is here. Profoundly disappointed. Incredibly hurt. How could the Jesus I know, the Jesus I love, leave me out? How could he exclude me like that? I mean, he knows all things. He knew when he came to the upper room on that Sunday that I would not be there. Why? Why? So I won't believe. I will not believe until I see it for myself. I will never believe. Never. Why, Thomas? You know the truth. So why do you doubt? I'm hurt. I'm disappointed. I'm angry. Why was I left out? Why? Do you see how people's faith can suffer when they get too focused on themselves? 
Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. It's been a week. Counting last Sunday and this Sunday, it's been eight days. The disciples are continuing to gather in this same place. Now, they know the facts. It is a fact that Christ was crucified. It is a fact that he was wrapped in linen cloths with myrrh and buried, buried in a tomb sealed with a two and a half ton stone. It is a fact that tomb was empty three days later. It is a fact that the Sanhedrin didn't take the body or they would have gladly produced the dead corpse of Christ to dispel any notion of him being the Messiah. It is a fact the Romans didn't take the body either. They would never incriminate themselves by claiming they fell asleep on the job. It is a fact attested to by angels sitting at the head and the foot of the grave clothes. It is a fact that Mary of Magdala and the other women saw Christ risen. It is a fact the disciples have seen, heard, and even eaten with the resurrected Lord. But they still don't know how to put all those facts together. They, they, they still don't know what to do for an entire week. They just remain there in Jerusalem. They're waiting. And all Thomas has heard during that time, it's a long time, to keep hearing all of the others talk about, oh, we've seen Christ visually, physically, bodily, raised from the grave. We saw him. We saw him. We ate with him. Man, this is hurtful. I didn't betray you like Judas, just saying. I didn't deny you three times like Peter, just, just pointing that out. So why was I left out? Why? I said I was willing to come to Jerusalem to die with you, didn't I? And then you leave me out. You leave me out. Do you know why Thomas was left out? Do you know why John recorded this? Christ is about to show you in verse 26. Although the doors were locked, the front door, the door to the room they were in, they're still out of fear of the, what's going to happen to them because of their association with Christ. And now Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Peace. The peace he purchased at the cross reassures them that all is well with the sovereign God of the universe who has a purpose for their life. Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? And put your hand out and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, Thomas. Believe. Why did John record this? You know, Thomas believed in Christ, didn't he? He did believe in Christ. He was willing to die with Christ. But his faith is suffering because he's so focused on himself right now. It's all about him. And Christ has come to refocus his faith on the facts. You didn't see me last Sunday, Thomas, but I heard what you said, and I know why you said it. Listen, Thomas, everything I do has a purpose, and you're part of that purpose, even when you don't understand it. See, there is a purpose for why I called you to join me for these three years of ministry. There is a purpose for why I died for you. 
there is a purpose for why I came to the others the last Sunday when you were not present. There is a purpose for why I come to you now. There's a purpose for all of it. You might want to make a note in the margins here that the empirical evidence that Thomas thought that he needed is not necessarily needed. It's not needed. There's no indication he actually touches the nail prints in Christ's hand. There's no record of him actually placing his hand in the gaping wound of Christ's pierced side. But what does he do? This is why I came when you weren't here. This is why John records this. So that everyone who comes to faith needs to know what faith requires. And one of the biggest lessons concerning faith is that you don't focus on yourself. You don't focus on circumstances. You don't focus on what you've got to go through in order to fulfill God's calling upon your life. No, your faith is not focused on you. Your faith is focused on me. I am the author and perfecter of your faith, Thomas. I am the one who has prepared a place for you. I am the one who has redeemed you at the cross. I am the one who has given your life purpose and meaning. You said you would die for me, and you will. You will die for me. But let me tell you, Thomas, you would have never finished well if your faith had remained focused on you instead of on me. You never would have gone to India. You would have never died for me in India. It would have never happened as long as you were concerned about yourself. Do you understand that? Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. Do you see how faith is strengthened by facts if the focus is on Christ? Thomas doesn't say you're the Christ, the son of the living God, like Peter did up in uh, was Caesarea Philippi in Matthew 16. He says, my Lord, my God. Your testimony is not what we believe here at Wellington. Your testimony is not what everyone else here at Wellington believes. Your, your, your testimony is not what your daddy believed when he brought you up. Your testimony is my Lord and my God. So when somebody knocks on your door and says, well, Jesus is the first created who is like God, but not fully God. You know what you do? You take them to this text, Thomas's experience. You show them the proof that Christ is the God who entered humanity to be a ransom for many. And then he proves that he is the author of life who defeated the death that sin brings to all men. And that he is my Lord and my God. So for you to come to me with this nonsense that he's just a good moral man while he believed a lie. He's a good moral man who believed he was the Messiah and he wasn't. He was a good moral man who deceived Jew and Gentile. He was just a good moral man who was able to manufacture the ripping of a 60-foot veil that was 9 to 10 inches thick at the temple with one simple word to tell us die. He was a good moral man who was able to fabricate and escape from a heavily guarded tomb and then convince skeptical cowards to boldly stand before religious authorities. 
and powerful governors and threatening emperors before giving them eyewitness appearances to men, women, and 500 at one time? Come on, who is it that's being deceived here? You will never convince me that he is the phony God of your religion. The facts are all against you, all against you. He is risen indeed. He is risen indeed. Confirmed by those who were not looking for, nor were they expecting a resurrection. Confirmed by eyewitnesses who refused to be gullible and subject to a hoax. They demanded their faith be founded on facts. Demanded. Giving eyewitness testimonies as to what they saw. Confirmed by the Holy Spirit. Now, listen, he's my Lord and my God. So don't come at me with any of that other nonsense. Now, to be honest with you, folks, people are not going to believe us either. Even if we're giving them the facts, they're not going to believe us if our lives don't conform to what we claim to believe. You know, the Lord said back in Isaiah 29, these people say, they say they are mine because they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You know, Christ quotes that in Matthew 15 concerning the religious leaders of his day. You can say whatever you want in your testimony. Say whatever you want. But if your life doesn't confirm you believe it, who's going to believe you? Who's going to believe you? Christ asking me, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. What does Christ mean by that? That, that it's better to have a subjective faith than an objective one that, 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 that sees the empirical evidence? No. No, that's not what he's saying. He's talking about an, object, uh, an objective faith, not a subjective one. He's talking about a faith based on objective facts that lead to a satisfied faith. And what I mean by that is when you, when you are focused on the truth and your faith is satisfied in the truth of Christ then you're not constantly questioning the Lord. You're not constantly yearning for confirmation of his word through dreams or miracles or, or mystical experiences like so many others who call themselves Christians today. Yes, supernatural miracles did confirm the deity of Christ, but they didn't lead people to faith. I mean, we see this with the Lord's amazing miracles even with the Israelites. I mean, he delivers them and they go across on dry land as the sea parts for them. He gives them manna from heaven every day. And what happens? That entire generation has to die outside the promised land because of a lack of faith. Christ said, Luke 16, Man in Hades asked that Lazarus be sent back to warn his brothers of the torments of hell. And he was told, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen to the scriptures, then they won't be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. They won't. 
So, so the problem with faith is not really a lack of evidence, is it? The problem with faith is the, is the presence of sin that hardens the human heart. We don't need Christ to physically pre present for us a visual of his bodily resurrection, do we? In order for us to believe? We don't. Why? Because we have facts based on eyewitness testimonies. I mean, this is the whole reason John wrote this. He told you in the very first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And now how does he end his gospel? My Lord and my God. You know, if this was a story created by man, I mean, if Hollywood was going to make this into a movie, the disciples at this point would have probably hoisted Thomas up onto their shoulders and danced down the yellow brick streets of Jerusalem singing, A friend is a friend forever. But this is no man-made story. You believe, Thomas, because you've seen me. Blessed are those throughout the church age who have not seen but will come to faith founded on facts, and their faith will be satisfied, satisfied in the facts found within Scripture. They'll be satisfied with who I am as revealed in Scripture, why I came as revealed in Scripture, what I did as revealed in Scripture, and why I did it as revealed in Scripture. Do you understand, Thomas, why you were not with them last Sunday? Do you understand that? Do you understand why I came to them when I knew you would not be present? I had a purpose. I had a purpose for it. See, faith in me is to be satisfied in the facts the Lord provides in his word. Now, I'll make visual appearances to not only you and the disciples and also 500 at one time, but throughout the centuries that follow, the hard hearts of fallen men will not be transformed by miracles or dreams. They'll be transformed by the Holy Spirit who will bring them to faith founded on facts as recorded in the scriptures the Lord provides. Christ had said, if they don't believe the scriptures, they won't believe even if someone is raised from the dead. That's why the Holy Spirit has John record this. That's why this has been canonized and preserved down through the centuries for you. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. In other words, it wasn't just the visual demonstration of Christ's ability and authority to create. John and them saw that back in John 2 when he changes polluted water into an oinos that refreshes the body and soul there at, at the wedding feast. The disciples were there when, when the nobleman's son was healed by Christ's spoken word in John 4. They were there and, and saw the physical restoration of the body in John 5 of the man that was paralyzed for 38 years. It was told to get up and walk. And he, he got up and grabbed his mat and began leaping and bounding throughout the streets. Healed. They saw that. In John 6, they were there. They were the ones who were distributing the food that Christ was creating that fed twenty to 30,000 people. They were there in John 9 when they saw the man born blind be given his sight. They were there in John 11 
when Lazarus is raised from the dead. So it's not just his divine power over all creation. It's not just his divine power over all of life. It's not just his divine power over all, all of, of sin and Satan and death as seen in the crucifixion followed by the resurrection. That's not all that Christ provided. No, no, no. There were hundreds if not thousands of other signs given to the disciples that were not written in this book. Based on these facts, recorded by eyewitnesses, canonized, preserved throughout the centuries, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the one the Lord promised in the garden, would crush the serpent's head. The one promised to the world through Israel would be the Passover lamb whose death would bring life. Whose blood as a ransom for many will deliver sinners out of the darkness of their lies into the light of a new life according to truth that leads them to the promised land. The one the Lord said would raise, be raised on a crossbar for all to see, for everyone to see how a holy God deals with man's sin and rebellion. How by his grace he provides the means of forgiveness without violating his holy character. All of these signs reveal the glory of God. And those redeemed for God's glory will by faith, based on the facts of the gospel, will be satisfied in the truth. They will not question the Lord. They will not ask for additional signs of miracles. They will not demand visually seeing a resurrected body of Christ. But the one thing they'll have in common with you, Thomas, which is why, which is why you were not here last Sunday when I came. The one thing they'll have in common with you is they will echo my Lord and my God. Fulfilling the purpose for why the Lord had John record this. So let me ask you this morning, are you one of the reasons that we have this? What do you personally believe about Christ? Is he actually the Lord of your life? I mean, we're talking about truly the God of your life. Everything about you is centered around him. The way you treat your spouse, the way you bring up your children, the way you serve, the way you give, who you are, the way you work. Everything about you is centered around Christ is Lord and God of your life. Now, if that's not true, it's not too late. I mean, look, the Lord chose a pagan named Abram out from the gods of his father who were worshiping a bunch of silly idols, and he breathed life into him and made him into a pillar of faith. I mean, he took a guy, a stuttering, stammering Moses who thought his life was meaningless because of a murder he had committed earlier, and he was already aged, and, and you know, how's the Lord ever going to use him? Well, he did. He used him to communicate his word in Egypt to a bunch of pagan people and then delivered his people out of that bondage through that old man Moses who gets his calling at 80. He took a boy, just a kid, a ruddy kid, David, just a shepherd, made him into a king. Made him into a king. 
He took an uneducated, impetuous fisherman named Peter and turned him into a rock. Took John, the, the, the one who's recording this. He, he was a son of thunder. He had such a, a bad temper. Wanted to rain down fire on people that he didn't like. Turned him into an apostle of love. And if that's not enough to impress you, what about the guy named Saul? A Pharisee, a persecutor of Christians, murdering people, rounding them up to be slaughtered. And he takes him and makes him an ambassador for the gospel to those Saul once hated? Wow. So let me ask you this morning, what's he doing with you? What's he doing with you? Now, if you're like Thomas and you're saying, well, he certainly isn't using me the way he did those guys. How come? How come? Let me ask you, how did he use those guys? I'm not talking about what he called them to do, to to go to Egypt and say, let my people go or or to be king of Israel. That's not what I'm talking about. What did he do with those guys? Why did he create them the way that he did? Why did he call them the way that he did? How did he use them the way that he did? What did he do? He did it for his glory. So let me ask you, how is he using you for his glory? Anybody in here whose faith is suffering because it's so focused on you? Or is your faith being strengthened because your faith is focused on Christ. I spoke with one of our ladies earlier this week who is physically suffering. She's actually in this service. A lot of pain, a lot of pain. And here's what she said to me on the phone. I know, this is a fact. She said, I know the Lord is sovereign. She's right. I know he has a purpose for my life. That's a fact. I know he has permitted this painful experience for a reason. That's a fact. And then you know what she said? I just don't want to miss the lesson that I am supposed to learn from this. See, that's a woman whose faith is focused on Christ and not herself. And that didn't just happen because she's going through a painful experience. I have watched that unfold in her life for the last 10 years. Is your faith satisfied in what the Lord has provided for you in his word? Are you reading it? Are you too self-sufficient you don't need it? Are you reading your Bible? Are you reading through John until you get it memorized? Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Are you trusting in the one through whom we have eternal life? I mean, let me ask you again. Is Christ the Lord of your life? You know, we only find life in his name, which means being religious isn't going to cut it. It's not going to cut it. Calling yourself a Christian isn't going to cut it. True life that extends into eternity is found in his name, which means the only way we approach a holy God to receive blessing that results in life instead of the judgment we so deserve is when we come to him on, based on his authority. 
That's what it means in Christ's name, coming on his authority. He is the way, the truth, the life. It's for his glory that I was saved. It's for his glory that I teach his word and preach the good news. It's for his glory that my life has any meaning or purpose or direction at all. Outside of God's glory, I am nothing but dust. Now, if you have a question about what that means or, or, or how you can live out your life to God's glory, you know, and a lot of that is service. It's service. So you can go to the Connect table and they will help you uh, get to the right person, maybe it's Tim Taylor or whoever it is, that will help you plug in to serve, to serve. Now, what about those of you who are struggling? You're having a hard time. I have gone through some really, really bad times in my life. And over the last 20 years, when it got really, really bad, and I was keeping my focus on Christ instead of on me, I still needed help. And so I've read this book four times, Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. Jerry is dead now, but when he was alive, I met him at a conference one time in Florida, and he, he was such a sweet man, a soft-spoken man, who went through a lot of pain in his life. And he does about as good a job as anybody I have ever read in dealing with that in this book called Trusting God. Now, for those of you who are not readers, you don't like books, scares you to death, you think there's no way in the world I'd ever read that book, I don't have enough time left in life for me to get through this. For those of you, Tim Taylor's got the solution. There is another book called Right Thinking in a World Gone Wrong, okay? And there is just a chapter in here on sorrow, suffering, and the sovereignty of God. That chapter condenses this entire book. Now, it doesn't cover everything in this book, so I would recommend the book. But if you won't read the book, if you just won't, please read the chapter. Sorrow, suffering, and the sovereignty of God. Especially if you go through hard times. Especially when you go through painful experiences, especially if you're dealing with anxieties or disappointments or you're hurt like Thomas was hurt. Your faith has to remain focused on facts rather than feelings. And so I think you'll find these resources to be very helpful. Now, unfortunately, we do not have enough uh, for everyone to, to be able to get these. So what Tim's going to do is back at the Connect table, there's, I think there's a sheet back there and you can, you can sign it. You've got two options here. You can sign it and say, I want this book and or this book. And uh, I think they can probably tell you whatever they, they, they cost. We make no money off the Resource Center, by the way. That's actually a, a losing proposition because it's a ministry. And that means that whenever someone wants to read a book and they don't want to buy the book, we'll put a pink tag on it and say, well, then check out the book and bring it back and we'll stick it in the checkout area. So we, we are not making any money off of recommending these, these, these books. As a matter of fact, if you want to buy them yourself and go through whatever uh, Christian books or whatever resources you have, get them yourself if you want. Or you can sign up back there, we'll get them for you, and whatever we can get them for is what you'll get them for. But I would encourage you to please read these. 
if you're going through tough times or if you've ever gone through tough times or you think you might go through tough times in the future because this is a really good biblical exposition of how to deal with that and to keep your focus where it belongs and off of yourself. Stand with me as we pray. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for your word. We thank you for giving us the privilege of salvation in his name. And so we have only one request this morning, Lord, that we honor you with our lives and that we give all glory, all glory to you through our service to others, which we will do in the name of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.